Welcome to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show. Dolphins are an integral part of the oceanic ecosystems along the central coast of New South Wales. Ronnie, I was wondering if you could please tell me a little bit about yourself and how the Central Coast Dolphin Project began. For me, it, it started quite a time ago. Um, I've always been brought up around the ocean, even though being born in Cessnock, in the middle of the scrub and nowhere and land of the big white goanna. I was always at the ocean. My parents used to holiday there eight weeks a year at Port Stephens. And so I was a keen fisherman, I was a keen swimmer, queen, keen with the surf, and it was just absolutely wonderful. And every year at Fingal Bay, where we used to go, the dolphins were really plentiful, as well as sharks. And, and so that captured my imagination. I was always passionate about the environment, always passionate about nature and absorbing as much as what I can because um, animals to me are just that pure substance and it doesn't matter whether they're terrestrial uh, whether they're birds or whether they're the marine life you know I, I think they're all so special but my passion itself has been with marine life and uh, it doesn't matter whether it's a prawn or a nudibranch or, or a whale or a whale shark to me they are the most amazing creatures we can have. When I met my wife back in the late 80s, uh, we were both members of Greenpeace. We both uh, were really passionate about the environment and we were actually on the crew on the Rainbow Warrior when Paul and Linda McCartney come aboard. Greenpeace sort of went its mark and uh, seemed to us become commercial, a lot like Sea Shepherd has these days as well. And um, so we went looking for something else. We joined Orca Whale and Seal Rescue and we stayed there for over 35 years, uh, 17 of which I was the president of. And um, while I was with Orca, um, I was also on the New South Wales Marine Fauna Advisory Committee for the state government. Uh, and I trained a lot of national parks people and people through the community who were interested in rescuing marine mammals and it was just absolutely fantastic. I can safely say that, you know, don't blow my own trumpet, but I've been involved in more marine mammal incidents than anyone else in the country. I've also been not just involved in a local content, it's been a national one as well, whether it's been helping free southern right whales, suggesting ideas in Victoria that have been beached on on um, sandbanks in rivers to mass strandings in Western Australia, to strandings in Peru, strandings in New Guinea, places like that, where people would ring up in the middle of the night and say, hey, we've got an animal, we're not sure what to do. And we'd give them advice. And I still advise um, national parks and wildlife and marine parks and people like that on marine entanglements, marine strandings and stuff like that. The real push for me has been my wife, Jenny. She is the one that's been the one there who really thinks, you know, you've got to do what you can, when you can, and you don't do it half. You do it a full effort and you go all the way. And my son, Jacob, when he was born, you know, he was born, I think, holding a dolphin in his hands. You know, he um, he's trained up in everything you can and he knows how to observe animals in the wild. He can pick animals out, um, whales on the horizon that people just wouldn't see. He's so perceptive on that. And, and it's... 
you know, just I think because of his upbringing, but he has a real affinity with those animals. He loves things like octopus and he loves seahorses. He has a real marine affinity with that. I think about that and then I go back into to our heritage. Of course, on one side, we've got the Irish Anglo heritage, but both Jenny and I have um, Aboriginal in our heritage. And um, my particular side, my great-grandmother, she was a Virapai lady. And she was from that Kempsey, Taree type area. And the Virapai, of course, are shark people. That's their totem. And I only found this out about eight years ago because it was never spoke of in the family about that side of things. And it was sort of a reckoning for me to find that out. And um, it was also such, such a badge of pride for me to have that. I started researching dolphins probably 25 years ago off the Central Coast because what got me interested there was, and it's still the same situation, we know a lot about the dolphins in Byron. We know the dolphins in Port Macquarie. We know them at Coffs. We know Port Steps. We know Jervis Bay dolphins. We even know more about the dolphins of this Newcastle on Sydney than what we do on the Central Coast. And so I thought, no, here's an opportunity. We don't know what we've got in our own backyard. This is what local people need to know, what they need to get that knowledge so we can protect those animals. We can protect our marine environment. And it's so important that we do that. And so that was the real um, creation of the Central Coast Dolphin Project. I was wondering if you might be able to talk us through some of the specifics about the populations that uh, live on the coast. I don't know whether they migrate, how they... You know, so they, I have seen quite a few pods on the coast, but, you know, can you give us a bit of a heads up, if you like, on how the populations move, mingle, integrate? Are they just one species? Are they two species? Do they have a particular behaviour pattern throughout the day? Where do they sleep? I've got so many different questions. I'd love to hear a little bit about the, the life of a, a typical Central Coast dolphin. On the Central Coast, we have some amazing pods of dolphins people don't realise. We have two types of bottlenose dolphins. We have Tersiopsidunkus, which is our inshore or, or Indo-Pacific bottlenose dolphins, and we have also have our offshore bottlenose dolphins, which are our Tersiops truncatus, which grow much bigger than the inshore species. Our inshore species grows to about two and a half metres. The, the offshore species, the bigger bottlenose, the truncatus, they grow to about 4.1 metres, which is really big. They're big, dark animals and chunky. We also have other species of dolphins. We have Delphinus delphus, which is our common dolphins. Um, we occasionally see these around the coast. We're not sure actually whether we actually have a, a resident pod of common dolphins, but we also see them in migration periods, which we're heading into now, where we might see groups of 300 to 1,000 of these animals migrating off the coast. And they're the beautiful animals. They grow to about two metres, they have beautiful caramel-shaped um, hourglass patterns on the side and they'll bow ride boats, they'll leap right out of the water. It, they'll porpoise right out. They are absolutely amazing animals and they are so beautiful, but they are also very timid animals as well. Uh, from January to March, we might often get false killer whales. Now, to explain that, false killer whales belong to a group of animals called blackfish. Blackfish consist of orcas, our killer whales, false killer whales, longfin pilot whales, shortfin pilot whales, pygmy killer whales, and dwarf 
uh, and sorry, melon-headed whales. And now these are the biggest of the dolphin species, particularly an orca. An orca can grow to um, 30 feet in length. It's an amazing animal. It's such a, an intricate animal to understand. And we do get them off the central coast. We get them off Terrigal. We get them off Nora Head. We get them off Sydney. We get them off Port Stephens. They're the most cosmopolitan of all the whale species. And people think they're only Antarctic. They're not. They're everywhere. In fact, there are seven uh, biotypes um, in the southern hemisphere, sorry, five in the southern hemisphere and five in the northern hemisphere. And um, they are quite distinct, the different um, types of orchid that we actually get. Typically off the central coast, we get type A, which are noted by the, the shape of the eye patch, the, um, also the cape along the back of the animal itself. Uh, the cape's that gray area from behind the dorsal fin. And it, it's quite um, significant to each biotype of, of orca. Other animals we get, as far as dolphins, we get striped dolphins off the coast. I've actually um, been to a rescue of a striped dolphin in Brisbane water, which had come in. Uh, this was about 20 years ago. And unfortunately, the animal didn't make it. It was compromised before it actually came into Brisbane water, but it survived in Brisbane water for about six days. We've had Rizzo's dolphins. Rizzo's dolphins are these animals that grow to about four metres. They have really tall dorsal fin and flippers, and they're quite unique because they have a, a rounded head like a pilot whale, but they have a crease right in the middle, like someone's hit them with a blunt axe, right in the middle of the forehead. And they have four to six teeth on their bottom jaw. And that's the only teeth these animals have. I remember being at a stranding once at one at Terrigal, right in front of the surf sheds at Terrigal. And we were lucky we actually got that animal back out. And uh, thanks to the help of the, help of the um, National Parks and Wildlife and also the, the life savers. They were absolutely fantastic. And it was a success story of, of this young Rizzo's dolphin. The amount of dolphins out there and, and the different species we often get pantropical dolphins moving through, spotted dolphins. Uh, we've had Fraser's dolphins move through. It's just being at the right place at the right time to observe these animals. And luckily these days, a lot more people are out there conscious of different things in the water and they take their photos and they, they watch through their binoculars and they go out for half an hour and three hours later, they're still out there watching these marvellous animals and they'll send in a photo and say, I'm not really sure. I thought this was a just a common dolphin. And you'll have a look and you'll say, well, actually, it's not. It's really something fantastic. Not that dolphins are any dolphins. But you have a look and you think, wow, this is so different to what we get around here. This is something we don't know of. You start thinking of climate change and stuff like that, where we've had um, Sousa or um, Australian humpback dolphins turn up down in the Shoalhaven. We've had pygmy killer whales strand down at Nowra, which are a tropical species. Everything's gone topsy-turvy out there. A lot of it's done because of the currents changing out there. And it's not just climate change, it's the differences in geomagnetic forces under the water, volcanic eruptions that can change things. There is so much going on there. And if you look at the world of what we know in the water as being a three metre ruler, we probably know two centimetres of that ruler. We're always learning, and that is the key to going out there. Whether you think you know what you're going to look at 
or whether you're expecting to see something, keep an open mind always because it's always different. In terms of the data that you're collecting, what, what specifically do you collect in terms of data? How do you collect it? How do you collate it? How do you organize it? And do you collaborate with any organizations so that um, you know, the citizen science data that you collect can be disseminated to the scientific community? We often contribute to, to groups like uh, Dolphin Research Australia, National Parks and Wildlife, humpbacks and high-rises, uh, the Dolphin Research Institute in Victoria. We also work with Taronga Zoo. We work with, um, oh, used to be the pet porpoise pool at Coffs Harbour, SeaWorld, uh, marine parks, uh, various groups like that, along with people like um, Macquarie University, Southern Cross University, and people like that. And we pass information on as we find it. We have different groups of our areas of research. One of them is primarily on our dolphins on the central coast. We look at our species. In particular, we've identified one local pod of inshore bottlenose dolphins, and we call that bee pod. The reason why it's called bee pod, the local Aboriginal uh, group from around here is the Dark and Young people. The Dark and Young people's word for dolphin is Burrawallawi. And so, in respect to those people, we call our first target pod, bee pod as in Burrawallawi pod. Uh, we look at our seals over on Barrenjoey. We monitor the numbers of seals of Barrenjoey. We look for entanglements. We look for injuries. We look at the size of the seals over there. At the moment, we know those seals are all male seals. 200 years ago, the sealers came through on the east coast of Australia and virtually wiped out all the seals. Seal rocks. Um, up near Foster. It's called Seals Rocks because it was a, a colony of Australian fur seals. Now you hardly get a seal back in that area because they're wiped out. The two seals we have in our area basically are Australian fur seals and what used to be called New Zealand fur seals and now called long-nosed fur seals. Uh, simply because people would say, if they're New Zealand's fur seals, why aren't they in New Zealand? And the colony of Barrenjoey is long-nosed fur seals. What we know about these guys is really crazy. This will blow your mind away. Is that you see a lot of smaller seals there and people think they're pups. Those guys range from about oh, 18 months to about three years old to have smaller seals. And what they're doing is they're learning the ropes. They're taking like an apprenticeship to the bigger, older seals. You get the big guys there that are about eight years old, good guys, know how to fish, know how to hang out, know how to chase the girls if they're around. And these little seals fire them and, and they mimic what these guys do. And it's part of their learning process. They learn to be a seal by watching these big, bigger guys. A lot of the times mum's seal down at Bonacue Island or, you know, or maybe possibly one of the other colonies kicks the seal out when they're just starting to wean, probably around that nine months to, to a year old with a lot of these seals. And for a lot of these seals, it's, it's some of their first adventures in the water because for the first six months, a lot of them actually don't go in the water. They stay on the land for mum to come back and feed them. And so these guys get out there and mum's kicked them out. And so they take up with these bigger blokes and they, they learn that apprenticeship from it. And that's what we've got happening at Barrenjoey. And it's just so fascinating to see 
because they do mimic the bigger seals in a lot of ways. Seals are basically nocturnal feeders. They love their oily fish, like their mullet, their tailor, their kingfish, those sort of things. But their prize is cephalopods. They love squid. They love octopus. They love cuttlefish. If you ever see a seal smile, he'll have black teeth stained from the um, from the, the cephalopods he's been eating. And so they're mainly active at night. So that's when the seals go out hunting. So through the daytime, you're hanging out, you know, oh yeah, we've partied all night. What do teenage boys do? Sleep all day. So it's so interesting and, and such a great thing to be involved with watching those seals, just going there, watching the numbers, looking for differences in the seal, IDing the individual seals themselves. There's one over there that they call Scott. And people say, why is he called Scott? He sits on a rock by himself and doesn't associate with a lot of the other seals. And that's simply Scott, Scott, no friends. So, so he's by himself all the time. And in fact, a lot of these seals do adventure around the place. They'll haul out in places like Putty Beach, Patonga, Pearl Beach, and they'll come into Brisbane Water and they'll haul out around Hardy's Bay. And in fact, yesterday we had a seal um, thermoregulating which just means he's just in the water adjusting his body temperature. They're, they're great, you know. You learn so much about yourself when you watch seals because you're watching something that is so relaxed, so cool, calm and collected. And you think, why can't I be like that? What am I doing wrong? Other stuff we do is we monitor all the whale movements up and down the coast through the north and the southern migration, but not only that, through the um, summer months as well. People don't realise not all whales migrate. Uh, we have a creature we often get off the, oh, sorry, a whale off the central coast. That's uh, one of the animals I've actually been involved with the stranding with called a brooder's whale, or it's otherwise called a tropical whale. Um, these guys don't migrate. They love the warmer waters and that's where they normally stay. And um, I was actually involved about 20 years ago with the stranding at Toowoom Bay where we had a 15-foot animal come ashore right in Toowoom Bay itself. It was looking pretty desperate. The authorities weren't sure what they were going to do. And so what we actually did was uh, try to swim the animal, make a circle. And someone from somewhere started talking about euthanasia. I'm sure that whale heard it. The whale made a beeline towards the rocks and made this quick turn and went straight out of Twin Bay. You, know, you swear sometimes they know what, what's happening. You know, it's probably just human arrogance that we think that they don't know what's happening. So we get our tropical or brooders whales around in the summertime around the coast. And they're often seen feeding in places like in the mouth of Broken Bay, places like Bird Island, Lion Island, stuff like that. We monitor our animals going north and south during the migration period. But we also look at the other periods where we get our false killer whales in that January to March zone. Um, we look for orcas traveling through we, we pass a lot of that information on the Southern Right Whale Program. We're part of that as well. You think Southern Right Whales, wow, they are so cool. You get this whale that's the same length as a humpback whale, but it's twice as heavy. Some of these animals are up to 70, 80 tonnes in weight. They'll sit 50 metres from shore just behind the breakers and they can submerge themselves. And they are so amazing to watch. Each Southern Right Whale, has this group of toughened skin around their head called colossities. Those colossities are as individual as our fingerprints. They harvest barnacles in there and there's also whale lice in there. And don't talk about whale lice, they're the devil's creature. 
they were called right whales because they were the right ones to hunt. You know, they, they have the highest oil yield of any whale and they also float when they're dead. So they were really targeted and they could be hunted from shore. And that's why they were so good. And that's why they were almost wiped out. We have this unique population off the East Coast, which probably has about 200 animals in it. You know, the Southern Hemisphere, we're lucky to have five, 6,000 animals in the Southern Hemisphere. And even worse, the Northern Hemisphere right whales, they're down to like 500, three to 500 animals. And, you know, so there's a good chance that these animals could be extinct in the next 50 years. And it'd be such a shame, these beautiful, big, gorgeous whales that are so gentle and so beautiful that we could lose these animals. I remember being involved with the Department of Environment in Victoria, where they had one stranded on a sandbank under a bridge in one of the estuaries down there. And they weren't sure how to get it out. Um, and what we said to them was, hey, how about thinking about this, getting jet skis around the animal and turning the jets to hollow out the sand underneath the animal. It's gonna be noisy, it's gonna be unpleasant, but this animal was baking in the sun and it was blistered in that. And so they took our advice. They used the jet skis and were able to dissolve the sandbank the animal was under and the animal got off. And it was seen a few years later, still bearing the scars from the sunburn, but it had survived. And, and, and when you get something like that, you can't help but think, wow, I actually helped do a bit of that. That was part of what I helped do. And now that animal's out there and someone else will get to see it. Someone can share that experience. And it's so fantastic, you know. <laughs> You're extremely knowledgeable and um, definitely very experienced in, in uh, knowing and understanding the population of our, our sea animals off the coast here. I just had a couple of quick questions that uh, came up in, in your discussion there. I'm just very interested to to hear a little bit more. You, you made a comment there about male seals only at Baron Joe. What, why is, where are all the girls? When you're males, right? the males go out exploring territory. They're the ones who've got to secure that area that's going to become the breeding colony later on. And this just doesn't happen in one year. It's not like buying a home and saying three months later, yep, we're paid for that, that's ours. It's, hey, we're going to get there. We're going to make sure it's safe. We've got to make sure the feed's up there. We've got to make sure the conditions are great. and Unlike um, people, when they come to a country, they think they know everything in 12 months about the weather, about the, the land and everything else about a country. These guys are really observant. They'll make sure it's right before they bring females there. They'll take their time. And um, there are some colonies believed in Jervis Bay and also uh, five islands down near Wollongong where it's believed the seals are breeding. But at the moment, um, the government only recognises Montague Island as the only breeding colony for both long-nose and Australian fur seals in New South Wales. Could you just talk just very briefly a little bit about how our First Nations peoples have been so intimately connected with um, the dolphin pods around the coast here? Absolutely, Mark. That's one of the projects we're actually looking at is, is we're looking at significance, particularly on the central coast. There's this beautiful story that the the dark young people told about Guyan and the whale. He wanted to make something really special and really good. So he put everything he could into this creation and made the whale. And he called it Guyanan, the whale. And he was so happy and so proud of this beautiful, majestic animal that finally he could ascend into the Mirabuka. 
Now, the Mirror Booker, for people who don't know, is mirror means um, river and booker means stars. And so it's the river of stars, which is the Milky Way, is where God, uh, uh, Biome lives. And so he was so satisfied that he went to Mount Yango, and you can see uh, Biome's footprint at Mount Yango, where he ascended into the Mirror Booker after creating Dian and the Whale. And to me, that is such a special story. You know, it speaks so much to me that, you know, the, the local people and, and the Aboriginal people of this continent had so much respect for the animals. They weren't about exploitation. They, they looked what they had. They protected what they needed to protect. They harvested with moderation what they need to harvest. They had such a respect for not just marine creatures, but for the terrestrial creatures as well. Even if you go up to somewhere like um, Carryong on the central coast, there's Carryong hieroglyphs, the Gosford glyphs. There's people known where, in apparently during World War II, some Italian guys were up there and carved uh, hieroglyphics, Egyptian hieroglyphics on the on the rocks. But if you push on further past that, you go up the top. There's a huge dugong carving in the stone, made. And it's absolutely amazing to have a look at. A lot of people don't realise it's there, but it's definite. I've seen it myself. And send shivers up your spine to think about this because these people would have the odd occurrence of uh, dugong in the area. Like I've been out looking for dugong at St Hubert's Island before that have been reported in and, and they have been there. These people have so much respect and so much reverence for a lot of these marine creatures. And we need to learn so much from them. You've traveled further north to, um, to my area, the Biripai people, the shark people, and their reverence for the shark. And one of the things is with a totem, you don't kill your totem. You respect it, you learn from it. We on the Central Coast are basically slap bang between Sydney and Newcastle. And so what kind of impact in terms of human activity? Okay, well, if you think about the Central Coast, you know, um, 250 years ago, before Whitefellow was here, if you go up to places like um, Woi Woi Bay and Horsfield Bay, in through the back there, you see pristine country in through there. It has been touched a little bit, but that's what it would have been like in a lot of places around this area. The first thing white people do when they come, they start clearing the land. Problem number one, stuff washes off. You know, we have the siltration. Uh, we have bars falling. We have rivers clogging and everything else. And this has been happening here for so long. You know, um, we have abattoirs. It used to be at Woi Woi Bay. We had abattoirs at West Gosford, which impacted the water quality. Plus, it throws the whole system right out. You have um, abattoirs uh, have that thing where they encourage sharks and rays to go to them, which throws the whole balance right out. Not the animal's fault, it's people. People talk about carbon footprints. It's bigger than that. It's people footprints. You know, it's not just the carbon side of things. There's a lot more to it than just that. And people worry about plastics. Plastics are a big problem, but plastics are just one problem. Human interference, human pollution, human interaction with the environment is what drives the problems and that doesn't matter whether it's car bodies in the lake it doesn't matter whether it's discarded fishing nets off the coast 
pathetic sewerage systems like we have on the Central Coast, which flood into our local lagoons and our local beaches. The impact we have building houses along dune lines, like places like Wombrel and North Entrance, the discardment of fishing equipment, boating equipment, the pollution that comes from boats, not just from people throwing it over, the oil, the petrol residue and that that comes off, the greases, stuff like that that go into the water, the paint that comes off boats, the tankers that are out there, the amount of rubbish that goes out of the side of a tanker is incredible. The pumping of effluent into the water, which they do, the, the dragging of the anchors while they're out there, the destruction that that causes, then what washes up on the shore, what hits the seabirds, what hits the turtles, what hits the dolphins, the crabs, the octopus, the shellfish, the algae. It, it's, it's disgusting. And then you look at the, something like the Port of Newcastle. You know, like people think, hey, isn't it wonderful? BHP's gone now and it's so beautiful. No, it's not. Look at all those coal carriers that are in there. Look at the oil carriers. Look at the, the, the cargo ships that are in there. Look at the pollution coming off them. Look at the pollution that's coming down from places like Maitland, Raymond Terrace and that, that in the water. As soon as we get a flood, because of the way that we've impacted on our land, the amount of wash that comes out from those places, the runoff of fresh water that's not absorbed into the natural system that comes out back out through into the marine environment. We have had such a shocking impact on this country in over 250 years. And we have yet a government that would stand up and say, let's do something about it. We live in the country in the world that has more sunshine than any other country. Yet we're, the, we're so far behind in solar energy. Ronnie Ling has just been voted in, member of the, let's call it the local marine life party and uh, overwhelming majority. You are now a politician. You have some power to affect change here on the Central Coast. What are some of the things that you would do to protect the environment, but also balance it against the needs of the, um, the society here on the coast? Well, the first thing I'd look at is our drainage system. Every time we have a mass amount of rain that comes in, we get pollution into all our lagoon systems because of the overflow of the sewerage system that we have. The other thing is, I would definitely get rid of those shark nets and, and smart drum lines. Shark nets, they're just a false sense of security. They're just one of those things that are there to, to buy boats, to um, let people that really like the beach, but they're not really sure about the beach, think that they're being safe. Sorry, the dumb drum lines. They encourage predatory fish to come around. They also have the possibility of entangling and snaring other species themselves. So they're two other things I get rid of straight away. Our homeless people on the Central Coast need so much looking after. Our mental health of not just children, not just youths, adults' mental health is something that's suffering at the moment. Our health system is in chaos. You know, I know you said the Marine Party, but, you know, it's much more than that. If people are happy within themselves, people will go out looking at things. People will see our whales. They'll see our sharks. They'll say, these are beautiful animals. I want to protect them. You'd get my vote, Ronnie. What I was going to lead into is perhaps more towards the interesting things that are about to happen around the corner here on the Central Coast. So there is a big 
special event. It's not a single event. It's it's quite a long protracted six month event that's going to occur shortly. Can you give us a bit of a heads up on what's uh, going to happen, not only along our coast, but all along the eastern and western seaboards um, very, very shortly? This is the greatest show on the planet. This is 5,000 kilometres of migration. We are looking at migrating whales coming up the east coast and the west coast of this country. We are looking at over 40,000 uh, humpback whales. We are looking at minke whales. Later on during the migration, if we're lucky, we'll get to see a southern right whale. This is the greatest time of the year. Um, it'll happen, well, the animals actually start leaving Antarctica around the end of uh, February and they start making their way north. Um, our humpback whales are the ones we mostly see. They're the most acrobatic, they're the most dynamic of those whales that are out there. They leap out of the water. We get the drone operators out there, we know some of them, don't we? And um, photographers love them. And it's great to get out there and, and watch these animals from the water, from the headlands. It's such a fantastic way to rejoice and celebrate these beautiful animals that were nearly wiped out coming back and we can see them. So these animals start coming through round now, like I saw some today. I saw a minke whale today and there was a, a, a humpback actually breaching off, uh, a friend told me, off Soldiers Beach earlier this morning as well. So it's absolutely amazing. And the sightings will now start to increase each day until we're getting something like 200 whales sighted a day off the coast, which is absolutely amazing to see this. And these animals work in phases. Um, the first phase are humpback whales to come through and normally the, the um, adolescent males. They're just not breeding quality yet, but they're getting up there in size, they're getting up there in age and they're powering through the first lot of whales. And they're thinking, hey, I'm gonna get up there to the coral sea and I'm gonna get some action, but they're not. Um, the second lot of whales that are coming through are the mothers and the females and the calves. Some of these mothers are pregnant. Some of them have their calves from last year. And some of them are going up there to mate, become pregnant. And these are the second phase that come through. And the last phase, which happens around June to July, are the competition pods, the males. Now, we often see these males from three to eight in a pod. And they are so, so dynamic on the surface. They push each other, they grunt, they groan, they fight with each other on the way. And they it's just like an explosion sometimes in the water. These animals get so active and they breach and they carry on. And it's amazing. But the thing about nature is with this too, um, it never follows set patterns. Like I've just told you three phases. Nothing to say you won't get a competition pod going through before the females. Um, nature is so unpredictable and but it's so wonderful and we learn so much every time something doesn't fit what's in the book every time something doesn't fit into to our mindset it blows us away and it's exciting and we learn really it's an amazing resurrection of numbers here on the coast in terms of whales we've had I think the population went down in the 60s to only a few hundred individuals. And now we have literally 30, 40,000 um, humpbacks migrating up and down the coast. Not as many southern right whales, unfortunately, but 
for whatever reason, their population hasn't bounced back as well. But certainly the humpbacks have really come back strong. And, and it's a, just a, a real celebration to see how protection and real concerted effort by, by people, by man, if you like, um, can have major impacts. And, and we can have this change, this significant change happen over a period of time. So that, that to me is a, one of those hope stories. It's good to see that you know, nature can bounce back and that we can, you know, recover, at least in some situations, um, from, you know, situations which were far, far more bleak and far worse. Um, so it's wonderful to see. What are your thoughts on, um, you know, the establishment of marine parks? Actually, that was one of the platforms that um, helped create the Central Coast Dolphin Project was um, marine parks, shark nets and PEP-11. Um, during that, the time, the three of them were, were actually generating around the same time for a long time and, and, and the issues with them. And there were people on the foresight and people on the against side that were actually enveloping and um, creating all these wonderful facts and figures about the marine life out there. And a lot of it wasn't true on either side. So we thought, well, hang on a tick. If the decision's going to be made, it has to be made by the right people at the right information no no embellishments on either side so that was one of the reasons also why we started collecting data and that on the marine creatures around the place and to keep keep it true you know like i'm not in favor of shark nets or seismic testing and that but i am in favor of marine parks but i don't want them formed through lies i don't want lies to because you know, a lie is just as bad as making making the deed done. Um, with marine parks themselves, they're a wonderful idea. They have to be selective about where they put them. They also have to look at, um, there was a stage where, particularly in Port Stephens, the government back in the 90s was imposing marine parks up in that area there. It's got to have a lot of community consultation. There's a lot of people that rely on that for their livelihood, no matter what, whether they're um, fishing charters, whether they're professional fishermen, whether they're spear fishermen, whatever. It, it impacts on a lot of people. And all these people have to be brought together to find a great um, balance to everything. There are areas that should be protected, but there's areas that can be used for recreational goods as well. Yeah, I, I look forward to the day that... Um, we have more marine parks here, but also that it's something that uh, the wider society here on the coast and along the New South Wales coast is also very happy to implement because it does have, from what I've seen happen, um, significant you know impacts in terms of fish numbers and also not only fish numbers, but diversity, I think, which is also extremely important. Ronnie, you've had a lot of experience with seal rescues, whale rescues, dolphin rescues. Are there any particular stories that you could relate to the listeners uh, about any funny, unusual sort of circumstances that you have come across in rescuing the, um, the animals that you've come across? About 16 years ago, I was up at Nora Head and there was a small New Zealand, or at that stage it was a New Zealand fur seal, long-nosed fur seal up there, and he had been really badly hit by a shark. You know, the animal looked as if it was going to die. So it was taken into care and taken to Ronga Zoo. Um, he was pretty, pretty badly done. He wouldn't have survived in the wild. 
And so um, the seal was taken in there. He was nursed back to health. A few times they didn't think he was going to make it, but he did. Uh, he was deemed unreleasable because of his injuries. And um, he'd become a permanent part of Taronga's uh, zoo and side of a few animal uh, pups down there. And the beautiful thing about it was my efforts in that. They actually called him Ronnie. And um, not many people can say they've got a seal named after them. Thanks, Ronnie. That's been uh, tremendously insightful. And I've definitely learned so much from our discussion this evening. I can feel and see the passion in you. I knew that when I first met you. It's clear to all of um, the folk who I talk to who relate closely to you and to the activities that you have here along the coast. What I wanted to do just just quickly is um, put out a bit of a plug for a mutual friend of ours. Um, that's Andrew from Terrigal Ocean Tours. Andrew runs a, um, a chart. Well, it's not a charter tour. He runs regular tours along the coast um, during the summertime and in the wintertime during whale season uh, tours out to uh, whale watch along the coastline here. Andrew has um, a single boat at the moment, possibly expanding his fleet. So it's a wonderful way to actually enjoy some of the sea life here along the coast. Now, in terms of assisting you specifically, Ronnie, um, in terms of the Central Coast Dolphin Project, what could people do or what could anyone who's interested and would love to be involved in the project or um, help in some way with protecting our marine environment, what would you suggest they could do? Well, if they contact us first, you know, either by our phone number, which is 0490401969, or through our Facebook page or website, it'd be great because we're always looking for people to get out there, see what's happening, let us know what's happening, see, let us know if they see dolphins, whales or whatever, you know, get out there. If they can observe a problem out there that needs fixing, we can then send that through as well to the authorities. And it's really important that we report things when we see them because a lot of people think, oh, I won't report it, they won't do anything, or Joe Bloggs has probably done that. No, we all need to report it. The more voices in there, the more chance we got at getting it fixed. The most important thing for anyone is to get out there and appreciate what we've got. You know, go out there, look for the whales, look for the dolphins. Sure, we would always love you to be a part of us and, and, and getting to involved. But what's more important is for people to appreciate and, and learn because you go out there with an open mind, you learn all the time. It doesn't matter whether you're, you're learning the way that a white-bellied sea eagle flies across in front of you or the way that a pelican can turn its beak inside out or the way that the dolphin can push itself right out of the water. It's all that beautiful experience that helps build um, the passion and, and being able to care and appreciate what we've got so we can make those right decisions, we can do the right thing and we can encourage our politicians to do even better than what they're doing. You've been listening to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show.